again and welcome to Trapped History. I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And I'm Oswin Baker. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we're joined by the historian of the hidden lives of women, Anne Seba, as we try to understand the mysteries of the French resistance. Okay, Oswin, picture this, if you will. Mm? It's the night of the 5th of August, 1941, and you're an Allied airman, just 21 years old. Okay. A front gunner in a bomber crew serving during the Second World War. All right. And we're going to call you Jack. So, Jack, you're flying over Nazi-occupied Europe on a bombing mission. It's pitch black out there when suddenly the sky lights up with searchlight beams and bursts of anti-aircraft fire. Your plane takes a direct hit. The pilot shouts at the five-man crew to bail, so you grab your parachute and you leap into the unknown. How are you feeling? Uh, Absolutely terrified. Mm, (laughs) Um, uh, It's dark. Uh, There's adrenaline pumping through me. Mm -hmm. Um... Oh, God, it must be so noisy. And I don't know where my friends are. Um, These four other uh, boys, young men who I'm flying with, where are they? Where am I when I'm suddenly out of the airplane? Where is the ground? Where's my mum? (laughs) It's terrifying. Exactly, all of those things. Well, today's unsung heroes are the people who risked their lives to rescue Allied airmen and smuggle them through Belgium, into France, into Spain and back to the UK in one piece. Wow, uh, that's amazing. And who are these brave men? Ah, well, you've fallen into the trap because it's not generally men. These escape routes are led and run by young women and today we're focusing on one particularly amazing woman who masterminded the largest escape network in occupied Europe. Her name is André de Jong, but we know her as Didi. So let's get back to our airman Jack. His parachute opens, he lands, he's alive. But he's got no idea where he is. He has to hide, he has to find help. So he sprints away from where he came down and he hides in a barn in a field. He gets lucky. Instead of being caught by German soldiers or the Gestapo, he's taken in by local Belgian farmers because this is where he is. He might have been out to bomb Aachen, but he's in the Belgian countryside. So Jack's given food and civilian clothes, and before he knows it, he's living in a world of safe houses, passwords and code names, as he's taken in by the Belgian resistance. Eventually, Jack is linked up with a brand new escape route for Allied soldiers and airmen, which will smuggle them down through Belgium and France, all the way to Spain. It's called the Comet Line. Hang on a second. So he's, he's landed or crashed... Not very far away from the English Channel, 60 miles from the English Channel, something like that. Yeah. Surely the easiest route is the quickest route and is the best route. Why isn't he being taken across the English Channel back home? The English Channel is being monitored by German patrols by now. Remember, the Germans have conquered Europe. The Channel is theirs. So if okay. you need to get out, you've only got the three S's, Sweden, Switzerland or Spain, the only neutral countries around. And for the Comet Line, it's got to be Spain, a journey of nearly 700 miles by train, by bike, by foot, if need be, ending with a midnight hike through the Pyrenees. And at least on this journey, Jack is going to be led by the Comet's leader. Is that, that's Didi? It is, absolutely. And remember, it's the 1940s, and Jack's a military man, he signed up before the war. So imagine his surprise when a young woman strolls into the room. She's 24. She's older than Jack, but she looks like a schoolgirl. His heart sinks, and she introduces herself as Dee Dee, her codename. 
At breakfast the following day, she tells Jack, an Australian, and another RAF airman that they'll begin their journey together by leaving Brussels, travel south, cross the River Somme, then continue 500 miles south by train to Saint-Jean-de-Luz, where they would rest up in a farmhouse at the foot of the Pyrenees. The men are dressed as farm workers to avoid standing out. They can't talk to Dee Dee. They can't talk to each other. In fact, they can't talk at all. Jack has schoolboy French at best. In <laughs> fact, you know what? Let's hear from Jack himself. Oh, what, what do you mean, let's hear from Jack himself? You just made this person up. This no, is just a no, construct. No, 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 no. He's absolutely real. He's a real person. He is, yes. Sergeant oh, wow. Jack Newton, front gunner in Wellington at W541, which came down at two in the morning on the 6th of August, 1941. And OK, he didn't parachute out. His pilot actually managed to land the plane near Antwerp. Wow. But he is the first RAF man to be picked up by the Comet Line. And given the fact that he gave this interview, he was the first to get home. But anyway, this is how he remembers the journey. Uh, we were in different compartments. There was myself and a Polish chappy, um, a Basque guide actually on the train from Paris to Bordeaux, and André de Jong, the leader of the Escape Line Comet, I just was dressed with a blackberry, a grey overcoat, I had a French paper and a bag of oranges and apparently people didn't like other people eating oranges in compartments, they just kept well away from them. This was one of the things I was told to do, eat and suck and make a lot of noise sucking oranges. Most of the Germans who were patrolling the carriages and asking for papers never spoke. They just came in and said, Papillon, you gave them the papers, they looked at it, they clipped your ticket, gave it to you back, they never spoke at all. Uh, and I looked possibly a typical Frenchman, a bit scruffy, a scarf, a dirty old coat, smelling a bit, terrible bag of rotting sort of orange peels in the bag on the floor. Uh, he didn't seem to want to know me at all. I gather that Jack was the only member of his crew to actually make it. I think all the others were... They were all captured. They were all captured. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely the lucky one. <laughs> So after their train journeys with all of the orange peel, uh, they arrive at the farm in the Pyrenees and Jack is handed over to the other great resistance hero in this story, Elvire de Grief, known as Tante Go, who's the Comets Line operator in the south. Her family controls all of the safe houses and border crossings. It's a bit of a family business, really. And at last, Jack feels some degree of safety. He's nearly at his journey's end. Some degree of safety, I think, probably doesn't cover it off. It, it doesn't mm. feel very safe at all. Being nearly at the journey's end is at the point where you're probably most in most danger. Yes, well, that is true. And I mentioned the three S's earlier, Sweden, Switzerland and Spain. But the Comet Line had originally been the three D's. It had actually been called DDD, André de Jong, Henri de Bliqui, and his cousin, Arnold Depe. But Henri is arrested in April 41 and later shot. And in July of that year, Didi and Arnold try out their first crossing of the Spanish border, but all of their charges are arrested in Spain. Most of them are subsequently freed and they do make their way to Britain. But in August, Arnold himself is arrested and imprisoned for the rest of the war. Didi is the only one left. OK, right. I think our listeners probably need to know a little bit more about her. So tell us now about Didi. <laughs> André de Jong is born in Belgium in the middle of the First World War. Her father is a teacher, her mother's a nurse, and that sense of service is really ingrained in her right from the start. Equally important, though, 
Belgium's wartime women heroes play a huge role in Dee Dee's outlook on life. Firstly, there's the British nurse, Edith Cavell, who helped hundreds of Allied soldiers escape German-occupied Europe and who was executed in Dee Dee's hometown. And then there's Gabrielle Petit, a homegrown hero who helps soldiers, spies on the Germans and is again executed. After the war, she has a state funeral and is buried with full military honours, not far from where Dee Dee lives. I mean, Dee Dee at this point would have been a toddler, maybe three years old, something mm-hmm. like that. I can really picture her and her family lining the routes, lining the streets for the funeral, visiting the cemetery, talking about Gabrielle and talking about Edith. It must have had a huge impact on Dee Dee's future on her future life as well you know absolutely and then when war comes and the germans invade belgium at the beginning of may 1940 dd sees it all she's already a trained nurse and so she immediately volunteers for the red cross where she starts treating wounded allied soldiers but in the blink of an eye the war is over for belgium it's known as the 18-day campaign and by the end of the month her country is surrendered okay so uh what can she do well she can do what she does best blend into the background be an anonymous, innocent, harmless young woman in an occupied land, because that's what's needed in the resistance. Yes, anonymity, okay. Mm. I mean, uh, uh, the French government has, since the war, has recognised around a quarter of a million people as having been in the resistance, and a significant number of them uh, are women. It's important to note, too, that there isn't a single resistance. There are factions, regions, a whole host of groups get involved, Uh, There's also the British Special Operations Executive. There's the Free French as well. But there are women running some of those groups, some of those networks, and particularly when it comes to the escape routes for Allied soldiers and aircrew, the stuff that Didi was doing, Mm -hmm. women are the backbone of that effort. If you look at the Comet line itself, around two in three of its workers or helpers are women. And You've got people like uh, Tauti Hilterman, Mary Lindell, Mary Louise Dissar, Didi, obviously. All these women are running various escape routes. And then there are the hundreds of taunt goes who are sheltering, feeding and, and moving people around. I mean, mm. it, 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 this is an, a, a mobilisation of the French and, and the Belgian and, and the Dutch yes. women. Particularly, that's the point that you hit on. There is no single structure that we should refer to as the resistance. So when de Gaulle, after the war, gave out all his awards, they were almost exclusively to men. Why? Because you had to be formally registered with a resistance group and then you could carry a weapon and many women couldn't do that. They couldn't leave children, they couldn't leave elderly parents. So women didn't actually wield weapons by and large. But when you start to look at what the women were doing, it's extraordinary. All these small acts, well, I mean, I say small advisedly, I obviously don't think they are, (laughs) things like hiding weapons, hiding airmen, hiding Jews, or helping these downed airmen go from one safe house to another. It, It was utterly terrifying. And women had to work below the radar, either pretending they were nurses or mothers or teachers or whatever else. But often they were performing useful jobs for various um, branches of, of the overall resistance. I mean, and this is how Didi herself rationalised it when you're talking about the fear of it as well. Of course I was afraid, terribly afraid. But I was not one to show it. 
Besides, I had a job to do and I was determined to do it. And it does feel that idea of, of this, is, this is actually a calling, that this is something which women of, of France and, and, and Western Europe who um, have traditionally been pushed aside or been pushed to the home and even without being able to to have a gun or a weapon with them this is something that they can do this is something they can do to for their country and for and for freedom and and don't forget the terms of the armistice that the germans inflicted were especially harsh in in financial terms and in sending all the crops east but also french women couldn't wear uniform so i think it was very easy for english or not easy but relatively easier for english and american women to wear a uniform and uh, that made a moral statement they occupied the moral high ground they could become um part of of the allied effort but french women couldn't do that they had no uniforms they weren't allowed to so what else could they do so this is one of the ways that they wanted to show they were deeply patriotic carla how did dd show that she was deeply patriotic well after those rather stressful early crossings Didi gets it down to a fine art. In fact, she personally escorts a group in August 41, not only to the border, but into Spain and all the way to the British consulate in Bilbao, where she persuades the initially sceptical British to fund the escape route. I mean, OK, that is a result. Mm. I mean, it's, it's interesting, though, what you say about having to escort people even when they're in, in neutral Spain. I mean, you'd have thought it's neutral, so they'll be safe at that point. But, you know, we've got to remember that Franco's Spain while ostensibly neutral, was uh, highly sympathetic to the Nazis and to the fascists. I mean, I, I was in Madrid recently and I was really taken aback to find a Stolperstein in the pavement there. You know, these small square brass plaques marking where someone lived who was persecuted, deported, killed by the Nazis. I think it started in, in Germany in the 90s and there are about 100,000 of them all over Europe. I was really surprised to find one in Spain. And I suppose that is just a reminder that it's not even a question of Jack and Dee Dee feeling safe at the foot of the Pyrenees in France. They're not safe at the foot of the Pyrenees in Spain either. You, you, you managed to get me to think what it's like being in the sky over Belgium, um, but uh, I, I, I can't even really begin to imagine what the journey through the Pyrenees and through the mountains would have been like. Luckily, however, <laughs> uh, we have someone here today who can help us with that. You've already heard her, but we're delighted to welcome Anne Seba, a historian, journalist and author of many fantastic biographies of iconic women, of, of forgotten women, the brilliant Les Parisiennes, about how French women lived through German occupation, and most recently, Ethel Rosenberg, a Cold War tragedy. And it's delightful to have you here with us. Thank you so, so much. You've really um, tapped into my big historical interest, discovering women who perhaps played an important role behind the scenes as a wife, a mother, a daughter, or part of a group and just isn't a household name. And I just think their lives are usually so much more interesting to research than a celebrity. 
And Anne, we're really interested to talk to you today about your own personal experience because just last year you actually retraced the steps of DD, Tontgo and countless aircrew in a journey across the Pyrenees. And what made you decide to make this journey? Well, um, after <laughs> I wrote Les Parisiennes, I, I, it sounds awfully arrogant, but I think I do call myself a footsteps biographer in that sometimes it's only by retracing the footsteps of the people you're writing about that you get a feeling you don't necessarily come back with archives or documents but it's something much more significant for a biographer a feeling of what they went through so I want I I suppose I published Les Parisiennes in 2016 and there were lots of Parisian women who joined these groups and and went down south and I felt I really wanted to reconstruct one of these journeys but then there was Covid and a few other things that interfered and it wasn't easy to get there so it took me till last year I was 70 far too old to do that sort of journey and I didn't have rigorous mountain training. In fact, I should say I'd never climbed a mountain before <laughs> in my life at all. And we did three peaks, each nearly 2,000 metres. So, you know, not insignificant. I think each one was about Snowden and you do it day after day and you carry everything on your back for, for the four days. That having been said, I can't begin to compare what I did with what you're talking about, uh, uh, the comet line. First of all, it's not wartime. Mm. Secondly, we did have wonderful French suppers every night. We didn't sleep outside, and we didn't go on the very highest route, the Chemin de la Liberté. I took a route that was a a well-documented route by um, an SOE woman called Anne-Marie Walters. And helpfully, she wrote a book in 1946 when her memory was fresh called Moondrop to Gascony. There are so many reasons why we don't know about these women's stories. Either they wanted normality, they wanted to bring their children up in peace and not refer constantly to the awful times they had so I think I was really lucky when I did my book on women in wartime Paris because many of the women I interviewed were in their 80s or even 90s perhaps they were grandparents and prodded by grandchildren they were prepared to tell their story whereas the French story which is what I'm familiar with is so mired in shame particularly the roundups that were done with French buses and French police and there were camps on French soil, uh, you know, Pithivier particularly, but others. So the French couldn't say after the war, oh, we didn't round up the Jews, that was the Nazis. Unfortunately, it was the French themselves and it was really only... um, Jacques Chirac, who finally in 1995 admitted French culpability and then the French were more open and prepared to talk. So I think I really caught a lot of French women and I understood from the women I interviewed that they had performed numerous tasks, but they weren't necessarily gun-wielding, gun-toting, perhaps one should say, so they weren't formally recognised. I mean, some of them did cycle around Normandy with explosives strapped to their chest, laying gelignite on railway lines, and some of them acted as passeurs 
and took um, down and resistors, Jews over the mountains. So, so there was a mix, but by and large, they haven't been recognized. So I just felt doing a walk myself would help me understand. And of course, we didn't have planes going overhead, so we didn't have that visceral fear. But I have to say, when we came into some of the villages, Books and Mel are, are the two villages which Anne-Marie Walters wrote about, and albeit we stayed in very nice French B&Bs, it, it was easy to understand how Anne-Marie, and she was escorting a party of six, seven, um, and she had papers sewn into her shoulder pads. So, you know, if she'd been caught, she really would have been um, thrown into prison and tortured. They had to crawl into the villages um, and sleep outdoors because the Germans were encamped in these villages where where we had the luxury of staying. She couldn't stay anywhere other than outdoors. So, you know, it does help to try and get this feeling of fear in your gut, which is what, you know, we need in order to convey what what courageous acts they were performing. And how did you find the route? What were the most, the toughest bits for you? <laughs> I like, I was just reading, there was something which uh, Anne-Marie said. She said, um, every bone in my body seemed to ache and my legs wobbled. And, and mine did too. <laughs> it's really exhausting. You don't notice it because it's a steady climb up each peak and then a steady climb down. But by the following morning and after three days of three separate peaks, it is exhausting. But I did it in August, not in deepest winter. So I didn't have the additional cold, nor did I have the fear. And it's those emotional things that I think really make it impossible huge variety of terrain as well actually although it was August huge variety in weather as well suddenly the mist comes up the valley and you may have thought oh it's a lovely sunny day and by two o'clock in the afternoon you can't see anything it's completely blanked out and that apparently is normal and some of the downhill routes are obscured by bracken that's three feet high so you're walking through this bracken for one hour that was almost the most difficult day we had because you can't feel the ground beneath you you don't know whether it's uneven or not and this horrible bracken releases all these spores and insects and and it was actually exhausting and deeply unpleasant and, and your hands are getting cut from it as well. And you can't see where the border is. And you keep thinking you can see the border. And then you're no closer. So, you know, even though it was August, it, it was not without a challenge, I have to say. <laughs> so the escape route's up and running. Mm-hmm. Um, but what next? It can't all have been plain sailing all the way to the VE day. No, and we've seen it in the films. We know what's coming There are traitors, people who, for whatever reason, money, politics, fear, spite, betray the people they're working with. You never knew who was among you who might betray you. Some of the passers who took money, particularly for Jews trying to get out, they would take money and then sell them on to Nazis. So you might come across somebody who 
you would think at, at, at one level was doing the same job as you trying to cross the mountains, but actually they, they were enemies. So you couldn't trust anybody and you just had to keep within your own group. Yeah, I mean, remember the women I, I mentioned earlier. So Tutti Hilterman and Mary Lindell, they are both betrayed and they are sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp. Uh, Mary Louise Dissard, who had taken over an escape network, I think she'd taken over the Pataliri line after its previous leader was caught. She only just manages to escape capture herself. You know, this is a very tense time. And I think we're talking, we're talk, this is 1943 mm-hmm. that we're talking about, which is sort of the pivotal year for the resistance. I mean, it is nearly broken. I, I say the resistance, but so many escape lines and networks and groups are destroyed in 1943 as the Germans are tightening their grip on France and as people feel much more ready and willing to betray. Now, as you say, Oswin, it's 1943. Didi has made the round trip around 20 times, personally escorting nearly 120 soldiers and aircrew into Spain. When, in early 43, while sheltering on the French side of the border, she's betrayed and caught. Didi is tortured and interrogated more than 20 times. Just like Jack, the Gestapo just simply cannot believe that this young woman created and led the Comet Line. They think that she's covering for her dad, who they arrest a few months later and execute. And so Didi joins Tutti and Mary and countless others in the women-only Ravensbrook and then Malthausen. She's little more than a skeleton when she's liberated in May 1945. As with all of these things, the leader may have gone, but the comet line continued. By war's end, nearly 800 soldiers and air crew had passed along its length and through its safe houses. Didi had created something strong and lasting, even though many other comet leaders would... uh, be betrayed, would be arrested, would die before May 1945. She's done really well, hasn't she? And everybody knows it. She's awarded the George Medal, the Légion d'Honneur and the Medal of Freedom. And then she almost disappears. She goes off radar, but she goes and does the thing which she'd always wanted to do, and that's nurse people. So Dee Dee finishes her nursing studies and she slips away to the Congo, to Cameroon, Ethiopia and Senegal. She works in leper colonies and will care for over 4,000 leprosy patients in her time in Africa. When her health starts failing, she returns to Belgium, is made a countess by the king and dies aged 90 in 2007. I mean, I, I love the fact that she's just made a countess by the, by the king. That's just sort of that's something that happens. I think the Belgians make quite a good fist of it. They, you know, they, they try to give her things to, to demonstrate their gratitude to her. I suppose this sort of comes back to some of the things that you've talked about, Anne, about that so much of the time these women are not showered with awards and and are not made countesses. I think the most moving interviews I had for my book were with a woman who was nearly 90, who agreed to be interviewed on one condition that I never mentioned her name. Why? Because she said, oh, I really didn't do anything. I don't want you to try and make out I was part of a a bigger force. 
And during the course of interviewing her, I discovered that she did train for the Red Cross because she was moving house and we found her Red Cross uniform all tidied up in a box. And she admitted that she had gone to the Velodrome d'Hiver, which was the place where all the Jews were rounded up in 1942 and had doled out soup as part of her Red Cross training. So she had done some Red Cross nursing. I also found a letter from a Canadian airman who she had hidden in her the basement of her flat in Paris. And she knew all about but she said, well, it was nothing. I, I was just asked by the local priest if I'd take them for a couple of nights. And in the 1970s, these airmen wrote back and thanked her for it. So we know two things that she did and then in another box it was helpful that she was moving because she was suddenly (laughs) turning up with things that she'd almost forgotten about or probably hadn't Um, uh, there was some political tact these um, political announcements from the Jesuit priest who was guiding her that she was delivering under people's doorsteps telling them that the allies were about to invade and to gather themselves and it all was not lost and that was one of the most dangerous things because if you delivered it under the wrong doorstep and you were traced that's when you were tortured to give away um, the location of of the printing press and the priest who was organizing you so three separate things that this woman had done but she hadn't formally joined a resistance group. So she absolutely forbade me from mentioning her name in the book. She remained anonymous, an anonymous source, because she said that it was nothing what she did. And what I concluded was that in Paris, actually, there were lots of these women who cumulatively really made a difference. But the general perception of what French women did was that they collaborated because that's more exciting for people to imagine because there were about two or 300,000 Franco-German babies. So, of course, there was a bit of fraternization. In my book, that's not collaboration. It's completely different. <laughs> And that's what most people focus on and assume that French and Belgian women in an occupied country did that. So it's about time we turn the spotlight on the other side, the revisionist version of history, if you like, because I think these women have in a way been trapped in the idea that um, most young women wanted to collaborate with these handsome German soldiers and actually just as many were doing small acts of rebellion or resistance that haven't yet been recognised. So Anne, we ask all of our guests to nominate someone for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, someone who we should all have heard of, a lot like the people we've talked about today but who we haven't heard of, but we really should. So who would you like to nominate? It's so hard because I really like writing about people who aren't necessarily well-known, ordinary people in extraordinary times who rise to the occasion. I think that's what interests me. And my current book is about a woman's orchestra, an all-female orchestra in Auschwitz, which sounds absolutely extraordinary, but the Germans really loved their orchestras and they were a tool of the Nazis because they used them to make the prisoners march faster to go out to their work camps and it was easier to count. 
In Auschwitz, for about 11 months, there was an orchestra led by an extraordinary woman called Alma Rosé, who was the niece of Gustav Mahler, and she managed to protect almost 50 women. They really were girls. Some of them were teenagers as young as 14 who may perhaps just have had a couple of years playing the recorder in school. So none of the women were actively gassed. Tragically, a couple of them died from typhus and Alma herself died of food poisoning. Probably she was deliberately poisoned. But otherwise they survived. And the woman in the orchestra, who I think, and clearly everybody at the time thought is extraordinary, is called Hilda. I say is called Hilda because she's still alive at 99. And I found her, everybody thought that she died because she lives in a care home in Israel on a kibbutz. And Hilda was a well-educated German girl who was sent to Auschwitz and she played the violin because she had a a well-rounded education. She wasn't a brilliant violinist, but she sang and played well enough to audition for the orchestra and she was taken on. Everybody in Auschwitz, I think, gave up their faith in God. But Hilda said to me when I interviewed her, because I've just got back from Israel, I couldn't wait to meet her. And she's frail, but completely compostmentis. And she said to me the one thing that kept her going was hope. And what the other women have written about her is that she was a natural leader. And she made sure when they were in Belsen, where they were sent at the end of the war, she doled out the soup evenly. And if there wasn't enough for everyone and one person had more one day, she'd make sure that another day that the others got equal amounts. So she was somehow somebody that everybody could look up to, a mother figure. As far as I'm concerned, every one of these 50 women in the orchestra was something of a heroine. But Hilda particularly, by keeping up everyone's hope that there would be a life after the war, which for almost all of them there was, that to me is the stuff of heroes to bolster other people and to give them hope. Wow. I mean, Mm. absolutely. When people say to me, oh gosh, that must be so hard writing about Auschwitz, I usually say it's not because it's redemptive, actually. It's a story of female solidarity. It's, um, you know, they, they triumphed, they won. I don't know what the single word is, what the soundbite is, but... There isn't um, a single word. No. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Carla O'Shaughnessy and Oswin Baker. Our engineer has been MK Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Flight Lieutenant Jack Newton and Luz Cosette. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please give us a rating, it really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, and where you can also send us your own nomination for the Trapped History Hall of Fame. Thanks for listening. See you soon. (laughs) Waffled on, you'll have a hell of a lot of (laughs) editing and cutting, but... Move it all around. That was Um, good stuff. So much.